turning your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2 this morning. And I must say, you're, many of you know my, my, uh, my mom went under hospice care this week. And um, it's been really hard. And it's, I just, I'm exhausted right now as I enter the pulpit. Just, just exhausted. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, just exhausted. And I, like, I can barely sing, which is not something normal, but I just was sitting here thinking, listening. It's just like, how many of you have, have lost loved ones over the years? Like, mom just lost her mom. I don't know. We've lost family over here. I'm just looking around over the course of the years. How many people have, have lost family members and watched them suffer, watch, watch them pass away? And it is such an encouragement in the midst of that as I thought about that this morning that, that you were able to sink and still experience the joy of the Lord. What an encouragement. What an encouragement that in the midst of heartache and struggle, we've got, a, we've got the saints who are singing praises to God. And, and that's why the Bible says that we sing to one another. <laughs> like, if you're one of those, I'm just telling you, if you're a guest and you're one of those people who tends to be one of those people who is is just okay with just watching a service online, bro, you don't get it. You're missing out. God causes to be among his people. This is it. This is it right here. And, and, and it's another thing, it's, it's encouraging to be at a church where you know people, you know their stories, and you know what they've been through. And then it, it, it's all the more encouraging and challenging when you're in all the above, strengthening when you, when, you, when you sing together and you hear one another in spite of the struggle, in spite of the trial. Like it just, we see that our Lord sustains and it's encouraging. So I do appreciate this morning um, your prayers as I, um, as I preach. If, um, if you're a parent or you've ever served in the children's ministry at any point in your life, you've likely come across your fair share of children's discipleship books or resources. If you know me, you know that I I tend to love buying children's discipleship books whenever I go to conferences and such. You probably come to my house and you'll find dozens of different children's discipleship books. I'm a big fan of them. However, I got to say this, friends, If you're a parent, know this, or you're a disciple of children, know this, that not all children's discipleship books are created equally. You see, it's amazing how often some books can drastically misrepresent what is happening in a given Bible story. For instance, friends, many children's books will venture to tell the story of Noah and the ark and portray it as some blissful, happy day where the sun was shining and Noah and his family were just enjoying some time on the top deck of the boat like they're on some carnival cruise. Perhaps you've you've seen that. And there there certainly is a happy element to Noah's story in that God was gracious to spare one family from his wrath. However, the story as a whole was extremely sad. You see, every human being on earth was drowned because of their sin. The earth was utterly destroyed. It was a dark and tumultuous time, yet most children's books don't lean into that aspect 
aspect, but they ignore it all together. See, Noah's ark was filled with happy animals. Jonah was swallowed by a joyful whale. The Israelites were lighthearted, painting their doorposts with blood before the Passover. Suffice it to say, friends, these children books overwhelmingly seek to somehow protect children from the idea that God is one who should be feared. They simply want to portray God to children as a cute and adorable character with big eyes, a big smile, who spreads joy and cheer to everyone around him, like Santa Claus. Of course, this isn't the problem with children's book publishers. Listen to many pulpits and Sunday school classrooms on a Sunday morning. You'll find preachers and teachers that would never suggest that we should fear the Lord. Rather, Jesus is presented as a harmless grandpa type figure, a therapist who listens to all of your problems, the type of king that would never harm a fly, or a needy feminine boyfriend sitting on pins and needles waiting for you to say that you love him. That's how God is presented. Yet, if we were to turn to the first chapter of the book of Proverbs, we would find that Solomon tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The beginning of knowledge. In other words, we have absolutely no understanding of God if we have no fear of Him. None. Yet, therein lies another problem because we often think that the fear of the Lord is a one-time event when we first meet God, but then He shows us grace so that we don't have to fear him anymore. That's how we often think of fear. However, Psalm 130 verse 4 tells us that God gives us forgiveness that he may be feared. Solomon says it a bit more bluntly in the last few verses of Ecclesiastes. He says this, he says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. See, friends, there should never be a millisecond of our lives, hear me, that we do not fear the Lord. Not one millisecond. Yet, if you're like me, if you're like me, you often do not fear the Lord like you should. Anybody in that boat? Anybody in that season? You fear your business failing you. You fear the direction of the country You fear your health declining. You you fear your dreams not coming true. You fear the way that your, your family might turn out. Oh, friend, you fear many things, but the fear of the Lord is often on the back burner. Church, today I want us to consider what it means to fear the Lord. How might we fear Him correctly? How might we fear Him incorrectly? What is the root of a healthy fear of the Lord? What does a life that fears the Lord look like? What does a life that doesn't fear the Lord look like? I have one main point this morning, followed by four sub-points, but my main point is this. When we truly see God for who He is, when we truly see God for who He is, we will fear Him, run to Him, 
Trust Him and walk in His strength. I'll say that again. When we truly see God for who He is, we will fear Him, run to Him, trust Him, and walk in His strength. Friends, hopefully you've made your way to the book of Joshua chapter 2. It's my effort this morning to preach, if God wills, the whole chapter of Joshua chapter 2. So please follow along in your Bibles as I read. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went, but after them, uh, go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea uh, for when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is, in, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me, by the Lord, that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't, if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless, when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into the house. If any of them go out outside your house into the street, there will be blood, uh, there will be... Their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on their head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left... They went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. Then Joshua said, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. May God bless the reading of his word.
this morning. Point one, God honoring fear. God honoring fear occurs when we fear God more than anything else. God honoring fear occurs when we fear God more than anything else. Over the past few weeks, we've talked extensively about how God was giving the promised land over to the Israelites for them to possess. See, God explicitly said that he would give the Israelites the promised land. However, God was also calling the Israelites to go actively possess the promised land. Yet, as we've read, God didn't exactly give Joshua a full blueprint as to how everything would would work out over the next few years. He wasn't like, here's exactly what the next five years looks like. And we'll see that God eventually begins to give Joshua and the Israelites some very specific instructions over time. However, at this point, they only know that their assignment is to cross the Jordan and begin taking possession of the land. Therefore, Joshua seeks to be obedient to what God calls him to do. What's that look like? Well, he just acts in a logical manner consistent with what it would look like to trust God in the given situation. He sends spies out to the land in order to put together a strategy to conquer this said land. Friends, this is what walking by faith looked like. Simply trusting God and walking in simple obedience. See, the city that Joshua had the spies spend the most time spying out, as as we read this morning, it, it was the city of Jericho. The spies would leave camp in Shittim and and travel west, cross the Jordan River, and head to the ancient city of Jericho. This was was roughly a a 12-mile trip one way. Now, you, you might be familiar with the fact that the city of Jericho is one of the oldest cities in the world. Its Its location was close to the Dead Sea, it was close to the Jordan River, and it was fairly close to the Mediterranean Sea, and so it made it a a very attractive agricultural area. Needless to say, it was a a fairly wealthy and powerful ancient city. So as the text tells us, Joshua sends two men to Jericho, and they somehow find their way to the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Now, one might snicker a bit when considering the fact that the only place that these two men found to lodge was in the house of a prostitute. However, the text never suggests that anything inappropriate happened or anything sinful happened or or that their ambitions were anything other than trying to obey what the Lord had called them to do. However, when when we really think about it, the, the, the idea that they were lodging with, with a prostitute was likely the best cover for these foreigners as they entered this unfamiliar city. It was quite smart, actually. The text suggests that they, that they didn't go into the city unnoticed. And, and, and because verse 2 tells us that the king in Jericho was told that Israeli spies had arrived in Jericho to spy out the land. These spies must not have been very discreet in their identity or their purpose because citizens in the city were able to identify their people and their purpose. Apparently, they were also caught going into the home of Rahab because verse 3 tells us that the king sent for Rahab and demanded that she bring out the men that lodged with her. The king even tells Rahab, Rahab, I don't know if you're aware, 
But these spies are spying out our city for the purpose of overtaking this city. So not much was hidden about who they were or what they were going to do. In other words, the king, in speaking to Rahab, was declaring just how urgent it was that they find these men. These men most certainly would have been killed if they were found. Any accomplices to these men would have been killed. These two spies were quickly the most wanted men in Jericho all of a sudden. Yet, notice in the text, notice Rahab's response. Fully aware of the gravity of the situation, how does Rahab respond? She hid the men. Rather than turning them over to the king, she was aiding and embedding these two spies in their nation's effort to overtake Jericho. See, verse 6 gives us details that she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she laid in order on the roof. You see, not, not only did she hide them somewhere in Jericho, friends, but she hid them in her own home. The risk that Rahab was taking in this very moment from an earthly perspective was enormous. Yet, she doesn't just hide the spies She also has quite the interesting dialogue with the king. And verses 4 and 5 give us insight into their conversation. Where we read, And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Lie. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. Lie. I do not know where the men went. Lie. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. And all God's people said, lie. Now, based on what she says in verses 8 through 11, we know that everything she is saying here is one giant lie after another. She was well aware of who these men were, where they came from, and what they were capable of. For instance, verse 8 tells us that before she hid them on the roof, she was well aware of their plan. She knew that Yahweh had given the Israelites the land. In fact, she was quite scared because she had heard of God's reputation in the past. See, she knew the the previous ways that God had dealt with the other nations. She likely heard of what God did to the Egyptians, how, how God brought about plagues, ultimately killing the firstborn of every Egyptian household before bringing the Israelites out of Egypt by parting the Red Sea so that they could pass through out of, out of slavery. She had heard of how God defeated the Amorites in Numbers chapter 21. In Numbers 21, the Israelites simply needed to pass through the land of the Amorites as they were traveling. You see, the the, the Israelites weren't looking for trouble. They weren't looking to damage the land of the, the Amorites. They weren't looking to glean from the land of the Amorites or even take their land at the time. In spite of that, the king... King Sihon and the Amorites, they they attempted to go to war with Israel, but the Lord destroyed the Amorites and gave the land of the Amorites to the Israelites. Not only that, but there were some surviving Amorites living in Bashan under the leadership of King Og. Like King Sihon, King Og decided to go to war with Israel. However, God again gave the Amorites into the hands of Israel. They destroyed the Amorites so that there was not a single surviving Amorite. See, friends, Rahab knew all that God had done 
for the Israelites. Rahab was well aware. She knew all that God had done to the nations that stood against his purposes. She knew that it wasn't just kings and rulers that stood to die if they stood against Yahweh. She knew that all of the inhabitants of the land would melt away before Yahweh. Every boy, girl, woman, man, king, and ruler would not stand before Yahweh and the people of Israel. Therefore, she lied to the king of Jericho. Now, now plenty of ink has been spilled regarding Rahab's lies here. It must be said that, that God, God never commends lying. We know that lying is a sin to the Lord. We can look throughout Scripture and see that the righteous, even when faced with persecution, don't succumb to lying, but were open and honest about their trust in Yahweh and accepted the consequences. For instance, Daniel, when commanded not to pray by King Darius in Daniel 6, he continues to pray openly multiple times a day. He doesn't, he doesn't hide. He opened his windows and prayed just as he always did. He knew that the lion's den awaited him. But he didn't shrink back from trusting Yahweh. God doesn't call us to lie. He just calls us to, to be courageous and trust him. Rahab's story is different, however. You see, she blatantly tells a series of lies to the king as she, as she hides the spies. She's a liar. Yet, we can see from Hebrews 11.31, you can, you can mark that down, look at it later, that Rahab was ultimately a woman of faith. We see the same thing in, in James 2.25. It tells us that Rahab was even considered righteous. Why? Because of her lies? Not at all. In fact, neither Hebrews, James, or our passage in, in Joshua 2 ever seem to mention her lying. See, the text doesn't criticize her. In a way, it's a detail that the text just glosses over. It's like the author of Joshua is saying, don't get too caught up in the specifics of what Rahab said. That's not the main point of the story. Don't, don't get too caught up in the lies. What is the main point? Well, the New Testament writings in Hebrews and James are consistent with the book of Joshua and pointing out that her faith was demonstrated in her welcoming of the spies and offering them hospitality in her home. That is what the text is pointing to, friends. Both Hebrews and James are giving us examples of what faith in action looks like. They're seeking to show us that faith it looks a certain way. However, Joshua gives us far more insight into the faith of Rahab. It doesn't just show us the fruit of her faith, but it actually shows us the origin of her faith. One might ask, why did she hide the spies? What, what, what motivated her? I'll tell you this, friends. The text points this out. The fear of the Lord motivated her. The fear of the Lord motivated her. As Yahweh's reputation preceded his pending arrival in Jericho, Rahab was utterly terrified before the Lord. In verse 9, we, we see Rahab confess that all the people knew what Yahweh was capable of, and fear had fallen upon the people. In fact, she gets quite a bit more specific in verse 11. In light of what Yahweh had done to the previous nations in the past, it was very clear that Yahweh was the one true God. It was evident to her. 
He is the true creator God. He sits over the heavens and he sits over the earth. He isn't some distant force, but he's active on earth. He is active among his, among his people. He is the sustainer and the ruler of all friends. She doesn't know much. She knew little about the law, if any, but the little that she knew about Yahweh caused her to confess to the spies that upon hearing of Yahweh's past actions, her heart melted and she had no spirit left in her, not just among her, but among those around her as well. See, to Rahab, Yahweh was terrifying. He was a conqueror. There was absolutely nothing she could do on her own to stop his wrath. She knew she stood outside of the people of God. She knew she stood as an enemy of Yahweh. And it was terrifying. She also knew that to stand against the king and the people of Jericho had great consequences. She could have lost her life at that moment. Her and her family could have been easily killed if the king's henchmen would have simply torn the roof apart and found the spies. You see, perhaps from an earthly standpoint, she had, she had good reasons to fear the king. He, he could certainly have taken her earthly possessions. He could have imprisoned her. He could have killed her. However, as she meditated on who Yahweh was, the one true God, she knew that she had far more to lose by standing in opposition to Yahweh. In other words, she saw God for who he truly was, and the result was a true, terrifying, God-honoring fear. When she truly feared the Lord, she lived like it by hiding the spies. When she truly feared the Lord, she feared him more than anything else in this world. Friends, this is what it has always looked like when God's people feared the Lord. For those who truly trust in Christ, they really do fear the Lord more than they fear any person, institution, situation, Government, form of persecution, or even the loss of their own lives. You might ask why. Well, many people might just think that we're just hedging our bets. In other words, we're saying, well, I'm not exactly sure that God exists. However, it is better to live as though God is real and do what he says and be wrong in the end than to rebel against God in this life and be found wrong in the end. That's what some people's idea of fearing the Lord looks like, our faith looks like. And friends, that is not Christian faith. That is not God-honoring fear. True Christians fear the Lord because they have truly seen the, who the Lord is as presented in the Scriptures, and it's terrifying. It's terrifying. This is, this is an obedience to what Jesus tells his friends in, in Luke 12. And I, and I know this isn't a comfortable subject. I acknowledge that. Luke 12, 4, Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed 
has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, and he doubles down again, fear him. In other words, Christians see that God isn't just sovereign over the affairs of earth. He is a holy, sovereign judge who has the authority, ability, and intention of casting everyone who rejects Christ as Lord and Savior into hell for all of eternity. That is our Lord. When I speak of hell, I'm speaking of a place that the Bible describes as a place of eternal punishment in Matthew 25, 46. A fiery lake of burning sulfur in Revelation 21, 8. A place of everlasting destruction in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. A blazing furnace where there will be weeping of gnashing teeth in Matthew 13, 50. A place where the fire never goes out in Mark 9, 43. A, a place of suffering through eternal fire in Jude 1, 7. A place where you will be judged alongside Satan and his angels in Matthew 25, 41. And a place of eternal destruction according to Matthew 10, 28. Do we see how terrifying this is? Now I suppose... The reality of hell isn't enough to strike godly fear into the hearts of many because when most people hear such passages, they automatically assume that they're too good to enter into a place like that. You see, they see themselves as never doing anything really wrong. They've never killed anyone. They've never stolen anything. They've never been arrested. Hell isn't for them. See, just understanding God is judge and even understanding where he sends the guilty isn't enough to strike the fear of the Lord into the hearts of the unelect. It is when we see how God judges that truly strikes fear into us. You see, we must understand that God's standard of judgment, hear me friends, if you don't hear anything else, hear this, God's standard of judgment is the holiness of God. And that's why it's so terrifying. And just how holy is God? Well, 1 John 1.5 tells us this, that in God there is no darkness at all. This means that God is pure perfection. There are, there are zero flaws in God. There is no sin. Perhaps the, the one place in, in all of creation that we could think of that, that is purer than any place in all of creation is the throne of God. And we know that the heavenly hosts are, are not marred by the curse of sin, yet even the elders and creatures around the throne, as they sit there and they gaze upon our triune God, they say what we sang this morning, holy, 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 all day, all night, all of eternity, never stopped, not just lip service, but actively phased by the holiness of our God. That is our God. There is never a point in which they stop crying holy because God is so distinctly above and beyond everything and everyone, even in heaven. He is gloriously perfect and he is gloriously distinct. That's why Romans 3.23, it tells us this, that each and every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We stand guilty. We stand guilty, friends. And Romans 6.23 tells us 
that the wages of sin is death. Each one of us, friends, we deserve and are worthy of the white, hot, holy, pure, just wrath of God in hell for all eternity. And none of us can stand with our chest puffed out to God. None of us can somehow stand on the same level as God. None of us can thwart God's purposes. None of us can change God's mind. None of us can change God's sense of justice. None of us can lower God's requirements. No, when we encounter the living God, all we can do is respond like the Apostle John did in Revelation chapter 1 and fall at his feet as though dead. See, friends, God's holiness is truly a terrifying thing. It is. It puts everything in the universe in its proper perspective. But it does. Even today, as Christians, we must understand that fearing the Lord is part of the everyday Christian walk. In fact, it is central to the new covenant that God promised to Jeremiah. You might not realize that. And Jeremiah 32, 38 through 40, the Lord God says to Jeremiah, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart in one way. Why? That they may fear me for a moment, for a season, for a day. No, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. In this life, Christians, as we see and we treasure God for who he truly is, we fear him more than missing out on the fleeting pleasures of sin. We fear him more than we fear the potential for poverty if we don't act in, if, if, if we don't act in an unethical manner. We fear him more than we fear the potential for loneliness by pursuing ungodly companionship in this life. We fear him more than the potential for not receiving earthly glory by pursuing selfish ambition. We fear him more than we fear losing our earthly lives because of persecution. We fear him more than we fear missing out on worldly ambitions because we're suing, pursuing gospel ministry. In other words, part of the reason we pursue holiness and don't turn away from God is because he has put a God-honoring fear within our hearts. It is a type of fear that fears God above everything else in every situation we could possibly face. In life. That is what God has done, if you are a Christian. Point two. God-honoring fear causes us, to, and the, the other three points are not nearly as long. Don't worry. God-honoring fear causes us to draw near to God, not run away from God. God-honoring fear causes us to draw near to God, not run away from God. Now, I've spent the overwhelming majority of my sermon giving us every reason why we should tremble before God. And, and, and if you notice, I didn't give any asterisks. I didn't give any qualifiers. And there are no qualifiers coming. I'm not lowering the standard of what it means to fear the Lord. God is worthy of us trembling before him because of who he is. He is terrifyingly glorious and holy. 
So, if God is so terrifying, how should we respond to him? It's the question that our hearts should ask. You might be tempted to think, if God is so terrifying and I am so vile, I must flee from his presence. I must do everything I can to get away from him or thwart his purposes. And friends, this is exactly what I call ungodly fear. Ungodly fear. This is exactly the type of fear we see from Adam in the garden after he sinned. See, in Genesis 3, chapter 8, it says this, that as God pursued them, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. We see this type of fear from Jonah as God called Jonah to obedience. You might recall in, in Jonah 1, verses 3, after the Lord tells him to go to Nineveh, how does Jonah respond? It says Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And even in our passage today in, in Joshua chapter 2, we see that the king of Jericho clearly feared what Yahweh would do to the inhabitants of Jericho, but how did he respond? He responds by working against the purposes of the Lord, by trying to find the spies and not let them complete their mission. See, this, friends, this is what ungodly fear looks like. It looks at God and hides. It looks at God and rebels. It looks at God and tries to take matters into his own hands. Yet, God-honoring fear looks quite different. In fact, it is quite ironic. I don't even quite understand it, but I see that the Bible says this is true, that the response of godly fear actually results in us drawing near to God, not running from him. Isn't that good news? See, this is exactly what we see from Rahab. Can you imagine what must have been going through her mind at the time? Rahab knew what God was capable of. Rahab knew exactly what the fate of Jericho was. Rahab knew that she, was, that she currently stood as an enemy before God. She stood outside of God's covenant people. Not only that, but this woman was a prostitute. She spent every waking hour selling her body for the sexual pleasure of men. Her life was as pagan, idolatrous, and wicked as it got. Suffice it to say, when you look at someone like Rahab, you would think there was no hope for someone like Rahab. Yet, it is precisely this fear of the Lord that brings a sinner such as Rahab to plead with God for mercy. Here, what we see in the passage is that she pleads with the spies to deliver her and her family from death. As she meditated on who she knew Yahweh to be, she didn't go and hide. She didn't flee the city. She didn't turn the spies over to the king. She looked upon Yahweh and desired reconciliation. She desired refuge in him. She simply desired mercy. Therefore, she simply asks for her life to be spared. That is how we respond to the fear of the Lord. Friends, as terrifying as our Lord is, when we truly fear him, we will truly desire him. When we truly fear him, we will truly desire him. We desire to be near to him. We desire friendship with him. We desire to worship him. 
We desire to follow him. We desire to obey him. We stand in awe of him. We do not flee from his presence. We see him and we love him. We desire to be like him. We fall at his feet and we give him the glory that he is due. In other words, we do not just fear God because he is hazardous. Friends, we fear him because he is glorious. We fear him because of how great and how marvelous our Lord God is. And this is exact. This is the exact response that, that we see in the Bible for those who fear the Lord. Consider with me for a moment Psalm 47, verses 1 and 2. It says this it says, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Do you notice as, as you hear that? What is that? That's a, that's a response of praise and thanksgiving and worship. Why? For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. What's the response? The fear of the Lord? The holiness of the Lord? Praise and thanksgiving. We also see this in Psalm 96, 1 through 4. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Again, notice this is a response of praise, declaring the goodness of God, how marvelous he is, how great his works are. Why? For the great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Now you might be thinking, I understand that God is holy. I understand that we fall short of his glory. I understand that the reality of that is terrifying and that we deserve his unrelenting eternal wrath. However, Brian, I don't exactly understand why we should praise him. I don't get it. He might be intrinsically worthy of our glory because of who he is and his holiness, but why should creatures who are deserving of his wrath praise him and draw near to him? Why should they declare his praise and celebrate his works? Why should they desire to be with him? Does there not seem to be some logical contradiction between the terrifying holiness of God and authentic and joyful praise of God? How could we possibly draw near to such a God? See, friends, these next few verses, these are some of the most glorious truths that you will hear. Psalm 145, verse 19 says this, The Lord fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Proverbs 10, 27 says, the fear of the Lord prolongs life. Proverbs 19, 23 says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Psalm 128, 1 says, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Psalm 85.9 says, Surely God's salvation is near to those who fear him. I could go on and on and on. However, the point is this. Christians, friends, we can draw near to a fearful God because this fearful God is also a merciful and gracious God who offers grace to everyone who fears him. That is our Lord God. 
Oh, the, the hymn Amazing Grace says it so well. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fear is relieved. See, John Newton knew that to truly fear the Lord was to truly see the Lord for who he is. To truly see the Lord is to desire him. To truly desire him is to seek him. To truly seek him is to find him. And to find him is to find life everlasting. And all of this, Christian, is purely an act of God's grace. Yet, when caveat to Newton's famous it must be noted, our, our fear of God is not relieved. Our fear of being objects of his wrath are relieved. Psalm 19.9 tells us that the fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring until we receive salvation? Enduring in this life? No, friends. Fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Because of who God is, he will be worthy of our fear forever. Even as we dwell with him and reign with him in eternity future, we will, at never, we will never at any point be him. We will not be him. He will always and forever be our God who is holy, 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 worthy of our fear. So, how can we walk properly in the fear of the Lord today? I believe that one specific application that the fear of the Lord should produce in us and among us in our church is a life of ongoing repentance and confession. A life of ongoing repentance and confession. See, it can, it can be quite tempting to continue on in our sin in the Christian life, can't it? We've been there. How easily can we find ourselves caught in the same habitual sins over and over and over in such seasons, when we find ourselves there, how do we respond? May I ask you, how do you respond? See, it can be so tempting to try and hide from God. It can be so tempting to isolate yourself from God's people, isolate yourself from the preaching of the word, isolate yourself from the rebuke of a brother who loves you. It can be so easy to run from God. We find that it's often easiest to simply stay in the darkness altogether that bring our sin to light. You know, that feels like the easy thing. And oftentimes when we gaze upon the holiness of God and his justice, it might even in our minds sinfully feel like the logical thing. Yet, that is an ungodly response to the fear of God. Christian, God's holiness doesn't call us to run from him in the midst of our sin, but to run to him. Is this not what John tells us in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, when we come to the Lord and repent of our sins, he greets us with a, forg with a forgiving embrace, with hands that were pierced to pay the penalty of our sins. Friend, if you are currently caught in unrepentant sin, there is no need to stand in condemnation today. Our fearful God is a merciful and a gracious God. Confess your sin to him and experience the loving kindness and grace of our Lord. Quickly, last two points. Point three. 
God-honoring fear, trust in God's provision. God-honoring fear, trust in God's provision. As Rahab pleads for mercy, the two spies, they offer mercy. As she had feared the Lord more than the king of Jericho and offered a refuge for God's people, the two spies made provisions for her to receive mercy. In fact, these, these two spies were so confident and committed to her and her family receiving mercy that they bet their entire lives on it. Our lives for yours, they say. Therefore, Rahab let down a rope and allowed the spies to escape and hide for a few days until the king's men returned. However, in order for Rahab and her family to receive mercy, they needed to trust in the provision of mercy from the spies. According to verse 18, they weren't called to go out and battle the people of Jericho on behalf of the Israelites. They weren't called to jump out of the window and hide for safety. Instead, they were to tie the scarlet cord and put it in the window. As long as they stayed in that home with a scarlet cord in the window, they would be safe from the wrath of God through the Israelites. However, if they were to as much venture outside or seek any other provision for their safety, they were no longer safe. Therefore, Rahab agreed, put the scarlet cord in the window, and trusted in God's provision of safety. A lot of this, a lot of talk of this scarlet cord and, and writing as has been made much of throughout church history. And many theologians throughout church history have said that it, it, it directly, that this scarlet cord directly foreshadows the blood of Christ on the cross because of the scarlet color of the cord. Well, I think there is a connection to the cross but not a direct connection because of the color of the cord. I actually think it has more of a direct connection back to the night of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus 12, you might recall that God brought the final plague about in Egypt by killing all of the firstborn children in Egypt. God, in that moment, he was pouring out his wrath upon the Egyptians as he set the Israelites free. The only way to escape the wrath of God was to put the blood of a slaughtered lamb on your doorpost as a sign of faith in Yahweh. All of those who stayed in their homes and put a sign on their doorpost were safe from the wrath of God. However, every Egyptian household that rejected Yahweh that night lost their firstborn. It was a, it was a night of mourning and, and weeping for the Egyptians, and it was a night of rejoicing for the Israelites as God, in his mercy, passed over their homes. See, Rahab's Scarlet cord, I believe, pointed back to the Passover. Yet, the Passover directly foreshadows the cross of Christ, where God's people would one day be saved by God's provision of Christ on the cross. Jesus would offer his body to be broken and his blood to be spilled on the cross to make atonement for our sins. And after Jesus made atonement for our sins, you know what he cried out? He said, it is finished signifying that there was nothing else to be done to make atonement for our sins. There was no other way, friends, that we can be saved other than trusting in God's provision of his son. Acts 4.12 says it this way, and there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
We must trust in God's provision. See, when we truly fear the Lord, we don't seek to earn God's favor. When we truly fear the Lord, we don't try to gain salvation by works of the law. When we truly fear the Lord, we don't try all of the different world religions and try to hedge our bets. When we truly fear the Lord, we look upon the one in whom God's wrath is completely satisfied and we joyfully trust that his atoning sacrifice paid the penalty for our sins and reconciled us to God. Better said, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, aboard I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because my sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Point four. God-honoring fear leads to strength and courage. God-honoring fear leads to strength and courage. Finally, I want us to see something amazing here. I want us to see something amazing. The spies completed their mission. Their spies completed their mission. You see, they stayed in the hills for three days and then made their way back to Joshua and Shittim. They came back and they were ecstatic. They came back and gave a testimony of God's faithfulness. They came back and joyfully proclaimed, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Isn't that amazing? Now you might not think that that's that amazing. However, I want us to consider what happened the last time the, Israel, the Israeli spies were sent out to spy the land. In Numbers 13, we might recall that Moses sent groups of spies out to spy out the promised land before they took possession of it. In fact, the text tells us that they spied out the land for nearly 40 days. They saw every nook and every cranny. And, and when they had returned, every spy except for Caleb and Joshua feared the people of the land more than they feared Yahweh. And because the overwhelming majority of the testimony of the other spies, the people of Israel, wept. They were despondent. They grumbled against Moses and they even wished to die. They even plotted to find a new leader and, and, and go back to Egypt. Therefore, God said that everyone in that generation except for Joshua and Caleb would not enter into the promised land. Why? Because the Israelites feared man more than they feared God. However, when we consider these two spies who feared the Lord more than they feared the people of Jericho and their king, we find something different. We find that, their fear of the, that the fear of the Lord brought about great strength and courage in their hearts, in Joshua's heart, heart and to the people of Israel. See, the fear of the Lord brings about strength and courage. But too many people think that a call to fear the Lord in light of his holiness is a call to an insecure Christian life where you can never please God. Too many people think that fearing the Lord results in walking on eggshells with God. 
Too many people think that calling one another to fear the Lord paralyzes us as we walk. Too many people think that the fear of the Lord condemns us. Quite the opposite, my friends. See, the fear of the Lord, it liberates us. The fear of the Lord, it gives us joy. The fear of the Lord gives us strength and courage. The fear of the Lord doesn't leave us cowering in the corner. The fear of the Lord gives us hearts that desire to follow him and obey. The fear of the Lord gives us hearts that desire to repent. The fear of the Lord gives us hearts that desire for our God to get the glory that he is due. In other words, friends, the fear of the Lord in our lives changes everything for the better. The best thing you can do in your life, and the best way that I can encourage you this week, dear friends, is to fear the Lord. And so my closing prayer for us this morning is that as a congregation, is that we would be a people who delight in the fear of the Lord. It's my prayer for us. Why? Among the many reasons I gave today, one I didn't give is because Jesus delights in the fear of the Lord. He does. I know this because the Bible tells us so. In Isaiah 11, there's a famous messianic prophecy that tells us that the Messiah, Jesus, would have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In fact, Isaiah 11.3 says this, that the Messiah's delight, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Christian, this is our Savior's heart. This should be our heart as well. So what do we do in those seasons when we don't fear the Lord? What do we do in those seasons where we find ourselves running from the Lord instead of drawing near to God? Christian, we drop to our knees before the Lord and we ask him to truly reveal his holy, righteous character to us. We plead with God to do a work that only he can do. We cannot conjure up the fear of the Lord on our own by the flesh. We cannot. We plead until we see him for who he is. We plead until God ignites our hearts in light of the holiness of God. And how will we know if God has answered our prayers? Well, we will earnestly fear him more than we fear any earthly circumstance. We will earnestly draw near to him to know him more. We will glory in his provision of Christ to reconcile us to himself. We will walk in strength and courage as we pursue obedience to what he has called us to do. May this be true of us individually, but more importantly, may this be true of us as a church. Amen.